Open up your Bibles to uh, the book of Romans. We'll be uh, looking at some scripture in uh, Romans chapter 1. I'll be looking at verses 24 to 32. 24 to 32. It's a big chunk of scripture with some heavy-duty words in it. This is going to be a strong message this morning, an important message, a truth message. And so I would like you to Pull up your phones or open up your Bibles, and uh, we'll be going through that in just a minute. But let's pray for our time ahead. Heavenly Father, I, I just pray that this message would be um, a time that uh, we would just be reflecting on the reality of our hearts, the reality of the culture. Lord, we would go back to the very truths of Scripture that Paul was inspired to write 2,000 years ago. Lord, some things that look to be as, as relevant as if he wrote these verses just last week. But Lord, I pray that um, this would be your message to each one assembled here, and by the power of your Spirit, Lord, that um, we would be open. We would be open to receiving the truth of Scripture, even as the culture wants to condemn the things that I'll be talking about this morning, violently in some cases that we want to be open to receiving what God has for us, what you have for us this morning. Lord, I lift this uh, message up to you as an act of love and obedience and worship, and I pray that I would just get out of the way, that this would be an opportunity for me just to be a conduit for you to speak to hearts here. So I pray I won't take anything away or add anything to the perfect truth you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, as I kind of talked about earlier, this is uh, part three of a three-part series It's been focused on uh, Romans chapter 1, the great book of Romans, one of the most important books. Um, Some pastors have said this is the greatest letter ever written. I would uh, tend to gravitate to that if I had to make a choice. And we've been in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 32, and the sermon series the last uh, two weeks and then finishing out today with part three is what is the state of your soul? What is the state of your soul? And uh, if you were here for parts one and two, I started with verses 16 and 17, which is a beautiful uh, summary and depiction of the gospel. It's really the theme of all of Romans right there. The just shall live by faith. We're justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's a beautiful picture of the gospel, and it really is the springboard into all of the book of Romans where Paul just brings the gospel strong, right? But then verses that that begin in verse 18, there's a chunk there that gives us really bad news. It's kind of the bad news before we can really bring the good news. So we started with the good news, and then last week I I went into some bad news. But um, we need to be talking about this because, you know, right now we're living in a time where people are hungry for truth. They want to know what's going on. They want to know the state of their soul. They want to know why they're here. They want to know who or what made them. They want to know what's going to happen when death comes. We got a hard dose of the reality of death with COVID-19, did we not? It was just plastered everywhere in the, uh, the media where they're just tracking deaths. We want to know. People want to know, right? And so what I... I'm doing in this three-part series is saying the Bible gives us what we need. It gives us the truth we need to know the state of our soul. And what Paul does is, what the rest of the Bible does is give it to us in terms of a binary proposition, a binary proposition. You're either one thing or the other. There's no ambiguity. You're either one thing or the other. Pastor Jeff has been in Matthew, and he's been talking about this. It's the wide road, the narrow road, right? And what Paul is saying this morning 
and to us through inspired Scripture is we're either saved by God or we're lost. We're either saved or we're lost. We're either warring with God or our soul is right with God. We're either at peace with Him or we're separated from Him. We're either counted righteous, justified by faith, or we're attracting His wrath. We're attracting His wrath, His holy wrath. We're either graced with eternal life and fellowship with Him, or we're headed, like Satan and the demons, to never-ending punishment. Never-ending punishment. That's what the Bible says. So we're either considered a royal family member of the king, which sounds pretty good to me, a family member, royal family member of the king, or we're an enemy of the crown. So again, verses 16 and 17 is the gospel. It's the good news. And then last week I talked about uh, several verses that get into four marks of unbelief, four marks of unbelief. It's unbelievers reveal God's wrath, unbelievers suppress the truth, unbelievers pursue idols, and then unbelievers ultimately pervert themselves. And so this morning what I want to do is continue on that darker side of the binary equation, the binary proposition, and look at consequences of unbelief. I'm going to give you three of them. So sharpen your pencils or hit your pen button and be ready to capture these in a second. But let's read our scripture first. Turning now to Romans 1, verses 24 to 32, it reads, Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They were gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithful, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that only those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That is a heavy, heavy set of verses. It's quite a lot from the heart of Paul as he was inspired to write some 2,000 years ago through the wonderful guidance of the Holy Spirit. We have to believe that God inspired men to write. That's what Scripture tells us. 1 Peter 1.21 says that For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we have to look at these sobering words here for us as truth that was given to us by God, by God's grace and provision. If we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, this Bible is the Word of God, that it is God's revelation to us of truth, then we also have to believe and act upon every word of it even the hard ones, maybe especially the hard ones, right? Not just the ones we like, but even the ones that may bring us persecution. 
We have to believe, as it says in our Anchorage Grace Church statement of faith, that the Bible is inerrant, and we have to trust that it speaks with God's authority. What I'm doing this morning is preaching with authority because God's authority is here in Scripture. We have to trust that what we have is infallible, and therefore it's sufficient to answer every issue of life and doctrine that we're going to face as Christians. We have to hold firm to the truth of what it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, if you want to flip over there. It exhorts every follower of Christ to see and understand that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So if we're to believe the Bible is God's Word, which I do and we do here in Anchorage Grace Church, we got to go deep into Paul's words today. we got to go all the way into understanding that hard list of sins, all of them. And we have to see that the consequences of unbelief, God is expressing his holy wrath. And he does it, he does it in three ways, three ways. Here they are. First, he gives people up. He gives people up. Next, in giving them up, he allows more sin for a punishment of sin. More sin as a punishment for people's sin. And in the end, a distinct expression of God's wrath, his wrath meted out, number three, is he punishes with death. He punishes with death. And it's not just physical death, it's spiritual death. And spiritual death means separation. It means separation from the creator God who is holding all things together, your creator and the sustainer of the universe, separation. And at some point, it means permanent separation, permanent separation. Paul makes clear in this passage that God's enemies, God's enemies, unbelievers, are deserving of death. All right, well, let's look at this idea of being given up. What does that mean? Being given up. Have you ever been tempted to give up on something or someone where you're just done? You're just, it's over? I think all of us have something in our lives, you know, where we reach the frustration point and it's something fundamentally changes, right? And, and in general, when we give up on someone, sadly, There is a clear break in the relationship. There's a fundamental shift. There's a severing of things. There's a severing in the relationship. The commitment and investment that we put in over who knows how many years, it's fundamentally changed and it's over. It comes to an end. Modern psychology has kind of stolen some Bible wisdom and coined the term tough love. My research is correct. That started to come out around 1968, tough love. It was kind of in response to a lot of people in the drug and sexual freedom culture, tough love. And the whole idea is that sometimes you just got to let somebody fall all the way to the bottom of the pit and bounce off the bottom before they're able to come to their senses and look for what's right and good and true and what God wants for them. Sometimes that's how you have to do it. And uh, we see that today. And moreover... The idea is also is if that person still wants to reject the hand of love reaching down to them, you have to be okay to let them go all the way. They're making a choice, and they're accountable for that choice. You have to be able to ultimately walk away. It's very, very sad. Well, as I said, if there's any wisdom in tough love, um, it comes from here first. It comes from here first. It's the idea of being given up. 
In last week's sermon, I wanted to very strongly reaffirm that God desires that all people come to faith in Christ alone and be saved, all people. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 6, if you want to flip there, tells us this. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. But then we have Paul in this set of verses telling us three times, three times no less, about human beings given up on by God. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And notice what they're being given up to, vile passions, the lust of the flesh, and reprobate minds. So how do we square this? How do we square God wanting everyone to be saved and then the idea of being given up, God giving up on people, giving them over to wallow in the pigsty of their sin, as it were, being cut off with a relationship? the sustaining relationship that everyone wants and needs and must have to have life, giving them over to sin and death, even spiritual death, which is permanent separation. Well, this is a tension in Scripture, but God, we have to remember, God wants people saved. Hold on to that thought. John 3.16 clearly states that. And Paul himself says in Romans 10, verses 11 to 13, I'll read those affirms an open call, and it says it by this way. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God has a heart, wants to save everyone, but not everyone is saved. John 3.18 tells us there's, there's an accountability problem with unbelief. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We have to, we have to just come to that reality. This is the truth of Scripture. In Luke twenty two twenty two, we have the Apostle Luke recounting the Last Supper. We'll have communion here A little bit later, um, that beautiful time with Jesus. Uh, But in verse 22 of Luke 22, we see how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are seen side by side. Verse 21, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me at the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. God determines that Judas would betray Christ, and yet Judas is held responsible yet still. Right? You see that? And so many want to bring God up on trial for this. Many want to say, that's not fair. That's not fair. But we have to go with what Scripture says. A lot of great theologians have gone deep into this tension, some great stuff out of John MacArthur on this. But we have to see that this tension is real. But I would argue that If you're ever wanting to put God on trial, look at the cross of Christ. Look at the cross of Christ. Jesus' agony 
on the cross at Calvary, the lashings, the pain to take a single breath, the blood that he shed, we have a good and loving God. That's why understanding the Trinity is so important. How does the Trinity work together to save us? It's absolutely breathtaking. So don't put God on trial. God wants people delivered from their sin. That's what I want you to hold on to. But it also is really important to know that when we read the text clearly, we see that when God judges people according to his standard of righteousness, he is declaring that he will not strive with mankind forever. People can misunderstand the idea of God's eternality uh, for a belief in never-ending grace, never-ending grace. You can always just, there's always more grace, and you can continue to go on in unbelief, and somehow it will all be okay in the end. That's not what the Bible says. People will equate that to license in some cases, but we need to know that we need to understand about God's infinite grace and mercy that God's mercy is infinite insofar as it is the mercy of an infinite being, an infinite being. He's infinite. His mercy is not infinite. His mercy, rather, is limited. That's how the Bible explains it. And His limited mercy and His limited grace is basically it comes to a, it comes to a point where he gives people over where he starts to starts to mete out his holy wrath and it's to impenitent people impenitent people that's the that's that's Paul's point here and so impenitence impenitence means shameless unrepentance it's willful disobedience it's without apology disobedience it's defiant disobedience it's angry disobedience. It's, I acknowledge you, God, but I still hate you type disobedience. Do we see that today? Do we see people shaking their fists at a good God who went to the cross for us? I think we do. I think we do. That's impenitence. The Old Testament talks about that. The book of Jeremiah, God does stop being gracious with people, and he gives them over to their sin. And the very first worst thing that can happen to someone is to be given over to your sin, to be given over to sinning without divine restraints. God's statutes and laws and, and the things that we're given to live by are for our own good. They're to protect us. They're to put us on the path to a right relationship with him. When we see our need, we're humbled by how great he is and how low we are, and we desire him, and we fall on our knees, and we say, save us. Save me. I can't save myself. That's a good God. But when he removes divine restraints, it's the worst thing that can happen to you. The book of Revelation, Revelation 22.11, says this, and the last judgment is set forth. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still, he who is filthy, let him be filthy still. It's as if God is saying at some point, if you want to sin, go ahead and sin. And the theological term, the doctrinal term for this is judicial abandonment. Judicial abandonment. I preached on that last week, if you were here. Judicial abandonment. God is dispensing his judgment by abandoning the impenitent sinner. And at some point, as I said earlier, it becomes permanent. It becomes irretrievable. It's over. Final abandonment, eternal abandonment. That scares me when I say that. You sh- it sobers me. I hope it sobers you. We don't want anyone 
to fall into that. Do we? I don't. We should be sobered by that thought. We see some examples in Scripture of this. I'll throw out a couple where there is a sense of just utter, just terror and, and just palpable pain when there's separation from God. Job is a, a good example of, of just being the blessing of God being removed for, for him for a season. In the first chapter of Job, Satan comes into the courts of heaven and brags to God and that everybody on the planet belongs to him and all willingly follow his devices. And God says, wait a second, you know, by the way, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, Job 1.8. And then Satan says, well, you know, he fears you because you're blessing him. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So, for a season, God removed the hedge and let Satan get at Job. And the man's agony is palpable as you read it, right? God in his grace held on to Job. We don't, this is an important story for us, but the whole idea of, of separation is, is there for us to, to kind of sense when we read that. King Saul and his disobedience experienced abandonment as documented in 1 Samuel 16, 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. It's the idea that when God moves out, Satan moves back in, Right? There's a vacuum left. So we're either, it's binary. We're either, we're either on the right side of the proposition and God is filling us and the, the gospel is, is the reality of being filled with the Spirit daily is happening or it's not. So where God isn't, Satan is going. Another expression of this is our, our Lord and Savior himself who suffered in the Judean wilderness for 40 days in solitude and hunger. And by his by his, in his humanity and his, his deity, he was able to withstand Satan in those days. But, you know, when it was all over, the angels had to come and minister to him. So don't ever take lightly the idea of being separated from God. It's, it's something that we as believers should, should ponder and contemplate and meditate on, and then we should have a heart for others. We don't want that to happen to anybody. Throughout Christian history, there's been a practice that gets to the idea of being separated, and it's called uh, excommunication. Excommunication. To be excommunicated out of a church body that's a doctrinally sound and correctly practicing church under the lordship of Christ. To be excommunicated out of a church like that is, is really only second to being sent to hell in final judgment. And the whole idea there is you're excommunicating somebody for impenitence, for willful, arrogant unbelief. There's a progression of steps that you take in church discipline as laid out in Matthew 18, but the final step is you hand somebody over to their sin. It's the final step of tough love, if you will, and you let them go all the way to rock bottom. You treat them like an unbeliever. The church I think today has a hard time with that. We've done church discipline here at Anchorage Grace Church, and we've had some people turn, and we've had some people go deeper into their sin and just harden all the more. We see it. 
In my research, I came up with one story that I think is very representative of this kind of thing. This was uh, an actual pastor who was just relating a scenario that he was in personally, and it was uh, just a woman who had left her husband for another man and was seeking divorce, not on biblical grounds, but just because she had fallen in love with another man, out of love with her husband, and now she wanted to be with another man. And so church discipline was brought against her. This was a sound doctrine church, and they were doing the steps properly. And at each consecutive stage, she just refused to repent. And so the church elders went to see her on the eve of putting her out of the church publicly, And they were pleading with her. They were pleading with her, and they're saying, please just come back to us. Don't go to this step. We'll give you whatever resources we have and need. We'll put that toward your saving your marriage. Please don't do this. Because they said, if you get excommunicated, the church is delivering you over to Satan, abandoning you to your sin. Well, she said, "Uh, I never thought of it like that. That's ghastly, and I hope you're wrong. But I'm in love with my lover. Well, she went on and divorced her husband and married her lover, and later on, she divorced him too. So our culture and in the church today, discipline doesn't mean as much as it maybe once did. We have to get back to that. We have to get back to what the truth tells us, what Scripture tells us about this. And Paul is just making clear that we have to pay attention to the idea of Telling people the truth in love. We need to tell the people the truth in love. So let's look at uh, point number two now. Point number two, sin for sin. What does it mean to say God allows more sin as a punishment for sin? What does that mean? Well, it means that many times, if not most times, the next sin we commit is a punishment for ongoing sin. It's because when we sin, we're actually working out God's punishment for the sin we're in. We become slaves to things is the point here. We get hooked on things. We get hooked on our sin. And we're stuck doing what we want to do, even as we decide we don't want to do it. Some modern descriptions of this are addiction, compulsion, crimes of passion, temporary insanity. This is what happens in judicial abandonment. This is what happens. God gives us over to our worst Sinful desires. He removes his divine restraint. I like watching Dateline, personally. Uh, Cynthia hates that I watch Dateline. She hates the music. She hates the show. Um, But I'm interested in it because I think it's a picture into the depravity of man. And uh, as a pastor, I'm interested in that and and how, how people get to the point that they get to. You know, but I'm always shocked and amazed at what people are capable of and what they actually do in these shows. But you know what? Rarely does anyone ever murder out of the blue. There's always a progression that gets somebody to a point where they make an incredibly terrifying decision. That is the progression of things. R.C. Sproul said this about the progressive addiction of pornography, which is everywhere in our culture now. Something in the New York Times last week was just talking about in the state of New York, there's There's some push to make pornography celebrated as an art form and taught to school kids. Are you kidding me? Pornography is an art form. Listen to what R.C. Sproul has to say about it. The very pleasure of pornography is the shock of it. 
This explains the all-too-familiar phenomenon of the downward spiral. Like illicit drugs, each hit requires a stronger hit the next time to get the desired effect. What was once delightfully forbidden soon becomes all-too-commonplace. And so darker perversions are pursued. The path from marijuana to crack, cocaine runs parallel to the path from playboy to pedophilia. It is, in the words of Solomon in the Proverbs, a path to death. And we see this. We see this. We see this in the church. And, you know, the secular world is just desperately grasping for ways to make people stop doing what they do, to kind of bring them on a path of health, and none of it works because it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in our text, Paul is not satisfied to just speak in generalities. So he starts to give us a detailed description of those sinful passage and how they're manifested in concrete behavior. Look at verse 26. Here we go. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. This is a text that you get canceled over now. But I have to just, you know, I picked this this scripture to preach on, and so I've got to preach it. It's the Word of God, and it's true. And so we have to talk about LGBTQ+. And there's two things in this very first part of that verse that I want you to see. First is, the Apostle Paul describes the radical corruption of the human race. He sees the sin of homosexual behavior as the sin, listen, most representative of the radical nature of the fall. It's a benchmark, if you will. It's a benchmark idea, benchmark corruption that entered the world with the fall. One writer said it this way, it is seen here not simply as a sin nor even as a serious or a gross sin, but as the clearest expression of the depths of perversity. Wow, that's that's not welcome in the culture these days. It's just not. Second, Paul actually mentions females first. Why does he do this? Why does he do this? I talked about Scripture being inspired. I talked about it being from directly breathed out by God, written down by men. Why did Paul put females first here? We have to ask that question, because after all, throughout history, it's men that are the gender that are most brutish and without conscience and pushing against God, generally speaking. Maybe women get a pass, but they're generally tended to be the fairer sex. But when Paul wants to describe the depth of the fall of the human race, he says that even the women exchange the natural use for what in Latin, is described as contra naturum, which means against nature, against nature. It's plain. Just look at biology. He's just saying simple observation of biology. This is not just against culture and societal convention. It's against how God created men and women. It's against the very nature of things. So such a sin is an outright rejection of God's perfect design for men and women, as it's explained in Genesis. And so Really, all the debates about homosexuality today are really put to rest here, whether it's acquired or inherently genetic or some other reason for it. It's not complicated. The Word of God says that such behavior is not natural. It's not how God created it, and it grieves Him. It grieves Him. And so it should grieve us. Now, we're not, we're all sinners. 
The point here is not to call out one sin. The point is to call out all sin, but also to see that in light of a culture that is hard after normalizing sin and and assuaging people's guilt through legislation and everything else, the Bible said that's not how it works. We have to see that. I hope you see that. Paul is straight up telling us what God thinks of homosexual behavior, verse 27, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Well, as followers of Jesus Christ, we care what God thinks. I care what God thinks. I want you to care what God thinks. And right here we see what God thinks. God is not a God of confusion. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And so we have a culture that's very confused over homosexuality, and now we have a whole list of other things tagged on to sort of the engine of normalizing sexual sin, which comes first with homosexuality. It's the L and the G of LGBTQ, right? So the bandwagon effect is in full play here. But really what the Bible says is we're not to normalize and legitimize We're especially not to celebrate what are unnatural lusts and behaviors. It's hurting people. It's hurting people. And that's why we should have compassion as Christians. I greatly admire John MacArthur for his courage on this topic. I uh, read a lot of his stuff, and I listened to some of his uh, things on on YouTube. There's one that I would send you to. It's a short 20-minute clip. It's called The Grim Reality of Homosexuality. And... uh, he does a fantastic job just laying out facts of the case, and he has some incredible statistics in there, and those are not being put out there in any way by the media. It's being suppressed. People are suppressing the truth about this, but it's, it's grim, and it's hard, and we should have compassion for people who are caught up in this. But, but John is basically saying, in typical compelling fashion, a very unconfusing way, that this isn't a confusing topic. He says this, Homosexuality is nothing more or nothing less than a perverse sexual behavior. Nothing more, nothing less than a perverse sexual behavior. It's not complicated. It's straightforward. Step back and see it for what it is and have compassion and pray that these people are rescued out of this. That's what God wants. Because it is a sin, and God desires that people be delivered from it. That's his heart. He wants people delivered from all sin, and this is one of them. This is one of them. People need to be rescued from this. We're all rescued. I'm a rescue example. God reached into my life when I was not pursuing him and rescued me, and now he's transforming me. All of us have that story if we're believers, right? And all of us are on this long list that I'm going to get to in just a second. Read some more of that. All of us are on there somewhere. We're rescued out of something. The Bible is telling us homosexual lifestyle is a lifestyle in need of rescue. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 calls out the sin and then offers the reality of rescue. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteousness will not... In- that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Do, you not, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. He's talking, Paul's talking to the Corinthian church, but he might as well be talking to all of us. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. And so the rest of the verse basically says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So God wants to sanctify, justify, wash. That's his heart. We need to see that out of Scripture. God desires to deliver us from sin, all sin, and homosexuality is one of such sins. It's a lust behavior that should never be redefined, reclassified, defended, legitimized, specially protected, or, heaven forbid, celebrated. We just have to say that. I'm saying that this morning. I'm saying that because I love people and I want them to have what God has done for me. We're not picking on anybody. We're picking on everyone. You see that? We have to acknowledge and and help people repent of it and nail it to the cross of Christ. But if someone's heart is hard, if they're hard and they choose to reject Christ in light of the truth, God's Word says that there are things that come due. There will be wrath dispensed. That's what the text is plainly telling us. A price has to be paid when people continue in sin and go so far to defy the law of God because they're guilty of cosmic treason. They're impugning his character. They're impugning his righteousness. And so this whole idea of being do something, you know, we've, we've kind of tried to work that out of our vocabulary, at least in terms of some things, but then people are all about it in other conversations. You know, they want, you know... They want some sort of justice done, you know, for whatever it may be. So people get the idea that due penalty is out there for error. There has to be a penalty paid. And we know as Christians that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. So justice was done. Pure justice was done. Eternal justice was done. But absent that, there's going to be an accounting. There's going to be a penalty paid. They're earning due penalty. And all this is rich in Judeo-Christian and Western ethic. So what Paul then does is go from homosexuality into a giant long list of wrong choices and behaviors, all of which were found somewhere on. And maybe God delivered us out of something, and now we were once this and now we're that, the binary reality of salvation. My question is, do your sins grieve you? Do you want peace and freedom in Christ more than you want your sin? Do you want to be able to stand boldly and speak the truth in love and take the heat and take the rejection and take the persecution, perhaps? Have you accepted faith in Christ's perfect sacrifice on the cross for your sins? That's, that's what Paul is pushing us to with this bad news list here. Do you believe? Do you believe? If so, praise God. If so, if not, let's talk, let's meet afterwards, let's pray, let's think this through. But then, in our salvation, we need to be out there talking the talk, walking the walk, speaking the truth and love to people with a heart full of the grace that we've been given. Faith comes by hearing. We need to tell our story. 
We need to tell our story. R.C. Sproul said this about what we see in the rest of the list of sins. If we can make it through Paul's entire list without feeling pangs of conscience, we're psychopaths ourselves. He has a way with words I like, R.C. Look at verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. A debased mind. This is a mind that does not focus attention on whatsoever things are true and pure and lovely and just, as it says in Philippians 4, 8. A debased mind is one that's just spiraling and thinking about impurities and the desires of the flesh and lust and jealousy and hatred. I always wonder what's going on behind people's eyeballs. You know, I've had this, you know, when I was a commander in the military, I would get discipline cases and I would just, I would just wonder what that person was thinking. Have we ever said that? What was he or she thinking when they do things, right? Well, this passage is telling us what is going on. A mind that's just in love with a lie and flees the truth, that's the reality that Paul's telling us about, and I think we see that everywhere these days. It's really rare when people are in love with God and have a taste and love for the hearing of God's Word. It's the wide road. It's the narrow road. So more and more it's rare, but the Bible tells us that's how it's going to be, right? Right? But we need to just be celebrating what God has done for us. And if there's any affection in our hearts to hear the things of God, it's only possible because the Holy Spirit has already rescued us from the condition that Paul is describing. If we have a desire to learn about the things of God, then something's happened. We've been rescued. We've been rescued. Something outside ourselves has come in and pulled us out of that, pulled us off the edge of the cliff, and now we're being transformed. We're being transformed. We're, we're becoming one thing. We were another. Now we're becoming something completely different. But Paul says, apart from this kind of saving faith, people are filled with unrighteousness. Plerao. Filled. Filled. Before God saves us, you and I had a mind reprobate, and we did not want the knowledge of God. Verse 29. For they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. Maliciousness, full, filled with it, filled with it. I don't know. When I look around in, in our culture today, I, I sense people being filled with a lot of this. And I'm not pointing fingers. I'm, I'm just observing. So we are the church of Christ. We are, by God's saving grace alone, here today, opening up this word in freedom and hearing this message and we have to be immensely grateful for that. But people still want to push against it. They still want to push against it. And that's why Paul continues in the list. He keeps on going. Unrighteousness is a general term. He starts to give us more kinds of unrighteousness. Verse 29, fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness. Let it not even be named among you as fitting for saints. That's Ephesians 5.3. We take our behavioral cues from the culture more than we should. And so, you know, I was just reading in some of my research about how the church has failed in that area. And this was a commentary that was written a couple decades ago. And this man, this pastor was just lamenting how it's just a problem in the church. And, you know, parents of teenage daughters want to give their kids birth control. We've gone 
way beyond that now, way beyond that now. What once was just a sexual revolution became a homosexual revolution, and now there are all kinds of stuff being added to it. That's the, that's the spiral of this. Do you see that? Do you see that? What was against God's word, most people would say, absolutely so, a couple decades ago, now is just completely okay and normal. The more, the more time passes, the more bizarre it gets. And we have to see that because people are filled, filled with un- unrighteousness. And we don't want to get our cues from the culture. We have to stand firm. We have to stand firm here in Anchorage. And we have to rest on the truth. And we have to be willing to be singled out for it. The LGBTQ plus agenda is against God's word. And I'm saying that, and, you know, that's, that will get, will get me canceled or us canceled. But the reason I'm saying it is because it needs to be said because God wants people to be delivered out of it. And he also wants people to see that sex between a man and a woman is a beautiful gift. Its purpose is to bring two flesh together. It's to be an example of Christ in the church. It's to be the building, to bring children into the world, to be the building block of the church and the building block of society. And then we live by God's word when we do that. It's absolutely beautiful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful when it's done right. And I can tell you, Cynthia and I have been married 40 years, we'll go, uh, 40th anniversary next March, and we haven't done everything right. I have not done everything right. But I can tell you that when a man and a woman try to do it God's way, it's, it's really beautiful. And there's not enough testimony that out there these days that, that, that is there for people to hear. You're just inundated with, you know, it's a 50-50 thing, and if I don't get what I want, then I can bail. And no, that's not, if you do it God's you have to do it God's way. You have to do it God's way. That's why marriage counseling is so important. And the sexual union of a man and woman is absolutely beautiful and good and good, and created very purposely by God. Beyond sexual immorality, Paul is adding wickedness and covetousness. I'll touch on covetousness real quick, and then we'll be wrapping up. Covetousness basically is a sign of someone who does not want God in his thinking or her thinking. It's saying that what somebody else has, I want. What God is giving me is not enough. I want a better deal. I need a better deal, and you're not a good enough God. That's basically what we're saying when we covet. We want somebody else's job or prestige or spouse or money or property. Who knows? God is just not giving it to me or giving it to someone else. I'm putting him on trial. He's not a good God. Well, there's no excuse in that, and we don't want to be guilty of that. We want to see God for who he is high and lifted up, incredibly majestic. We want a high view of God and a low view of ourselves. That is what we preach here at Anchorage Grace, high view of God. When we, when we think of him, we just need to be amazed. And, and, and living in Alaska, when you go on a hike in Alaska and look around, you just, it's, it's, just drink that in and be amazed by it because that's what God is and that's the God we want to be excited about. He's not a killjoy. He's not a bully. He's not holding good things back from us. He wants our best. He wants to love us. We just have to say yes to that by faith. By faith, we are saved through grace. Paul's list, verses 30 and 31, it's, it's, just, it's, it's everything we see today. 
murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, slanderers, haters of God. Wow, haters of God. Haters of God. Who will admit to hating God? People hate God. They hate God. They hate God in their hearts. They want something. They want it so bad, they're willing to just chuck the truth, even when they know better. And they want to shake their fist at God. That is what the reality of hell is. People who end up in hell are not there wishing they were with God. They're in hell realizing the reality of their separation, and they're all the more angry. We don't want to be haters of God. Let's stop the slippery slide. Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in the gospel. People do know better. God has planted the truth in every heart. We know that to be true. All right, I'm going to wrap up here. There's the last verse that talks about the reality of death and then those who do those things also approve of those who practice them. So this is the, I know I'm on a path to destruction. I know it in my heart. I know it in my conscience. I know that I know. But I'm going to try to drag as many people along with me as I can. It's the misery loves company principle there. And we see that. When I was in college, I lived on a dorm floor as a freshman. And I was not a pot smoker, but a lot of people were. And they were desperate to get me into their room and share their marijuana with me. And this was 1975, so I'm aging myself massively. But people who are in those kinds of lifestyles, who are sinning against God and doing things that aren't pleasing in His sight, they want to drag you along with them, do they not? Do you see that? Do we see that? I see it. I see it all the time. It's It's peer pressure. That's what our government and the media is doing writ large. Go with us or you're going to stand out and feel foolish. Tuck your head down. Don't speak out. Don't speak the truth. Well, there's consequences to that, and this is, this is the honor among thieves reality. We don't want to participate in that. Thanks be to God that the book of Romans doesn't end with this couple of passages. The whole rest of Romans is an explanation of God and his grace and what saving faith looks like. We have to hear the bad news first before we hear the good news. This is the bad news. It's a long list. It's a terrifying list. It's awful for me to have to stand up here and say hard things like this in some ways, but we want to hold on to God's truth. And though all the rest of Romans and all of Paul's epistles are about God wanting to love you into the kingdom... And the way that we come to God, the way that we come to Christ and are right with him is we say yes by faith. I believe, I believe, I believe. What's the state of your soul? I pray you be saved by grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these passages of scripture. I thank you for how firm it is, how clear it is, as hard as it is, as tough as it is, as countercultural it is. Lord, we have to be strong. We have to be faithful. Lord, help us just come together as a church and be strong to hold on to truth, to be ready to fight for truth, to be ready to be persecuted for truth. 
because we want to love people in the kingdom. We want them to be rescued by you. We want them to be saved. We want them to be on the path to sanctification, to spend eternity with you in glory. We want that. We want that for all sinners. You did it for us, and we want to tell our story so that others may hear. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.